I know Luke doesn't think of you guys as adults, but I do, so I just want you to know that. Uh, in your bulletin, there's a wonderful um, brochure to help you pray and hopefully to come to the prayer cafe that's coming up. Please take that home with you. Don't leave it lying around. And Anything we can do to pray more is wonderful. So as Luke was mentioning this week, um, 16-year-old Annabelle Vandenbroek uh, passed away from her injuries from the week before in a car crash on Carmel Valley Road. And a 69-year-old woman broke both legs, um, it w- and another student was involved, local students. So I know that you guys, a lot of you know them. Um, and I just urge everybody to be praying for the families, especially those of you who, who know the families, to do whatever you can to just be there and love on them. Um, just keep asking God to really help supernaturally. I just want to pray again for the families. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we do ask that in this um, really painful situation, you would comfort the families and the people who love the people involved, and that you would just pour your grace out that instead of recriminations, there'd be grace. Instead of um, finger pointing, there'd be grace that everyone would just realize how much we owe you and um, shower love on those families. We ask you to be very present and very powerful. In Jesus' name, amen. Often when things like this happen, um, people want to know why. Why these particular students? uh, If you knew me, and fortunately my wife did not know me in high school, but if you'd known me, um, I'm sure I made many, many more uh, unwise choices than these two young women made. You'd you'd think that those of us who have taken more risks and made many more um, unwise choices would have suffered greater consequences and greater tragedies, but that's not how life works. Uh, And God really hasn't given us enough information to know why, not the specifics. And not knowing why can feel very confusing. Um, It can be disturbing. But we do know some things. God is very present, and he's promised that, that um, he's here right now. We've been praying that for those of you who are here now, you would sense God's presence, that you'd hear a word from him. Hopefully, for those of you who have been very impacted by this tragedy, a word of comfort. But he's here. And he does comfort supernaturally in ways that go beyond our understanding. Um, We're praying for that, too. And one thing to always remember is that, that as much as we love people involved in tragedies. God loves them more. He cares more. Um, when Lazarus died and Jesus knew he was about to raise him from the dead, but just seeing the grief of Lazarus's sisters and Lazarus's friends, Jesus wept. And God tells us to weep with those who weep. And the reason he tells us to do that is because that's what he does. So even knowing how everything's going to turn out and how Jesus is in the process of making all things new, redeeming all of creation and, and making it come out right, he still weeps with us. So we want to do that too. Sometimes the pain of this kind of loss can be so strong um, and, we, and because it can be so disturbing not to know well, why these people, often we're tempted to get angry with God. And then that can tempt us to go through the difficult situation 
without God because we're angry at him and because he hasn't given us enough information to understand why specifically. So I would just encourage you when you're in these kinds of situations to cling to God. Kind of in the same way that all of us when we were very young, we would cling to our mothers when we didn't know why we were hurting, what's going on. I think that's what God wants from us. But also we need each other. And I know that many of you are there for these families and the friends and we just need that. We just need to be there and to care. Keep praying for people. Um, That's what I know a lot of you are doing. That's what Jesus would do. So for the message this morning, we're going to look at one of the most encouraging and most famous of Jesus' stories which talks about recovering from a bad choice. So would you open either an app or a Bible to Luke chapter 15 on your Bible in the pew, it's in page, on page 874. And you'll know immediately that this story has been labeled the prodigal son. It's about a son who makes some bad choices and ruins both his life, and you may not see it at first glance, he ruins his family's life as well. But before we go into the well-known story on verse 11, I want you first to see who Jesus is talking to. So look at verse 1. What's the context? Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Now he's going he's to say three parables. To whom is Jesus addressing the parables that are going to follow. Well, there are tax collectors and sinners there, but they're pretty excited to be there. From their perspective, everyone for years has been telling them that that they are losers, that God hates them, that they don't deserve any, any kind of love or help from God. But Jesus, who is the most powerful, most famous rabbi or prophet that anybody has ever lived with that's living that day, he hangs out with them. He even eats with them. And in that culture, if you were to break bread with someone and and, and do that and hang out with them, that meant you were accepting them into your circle, that they were worthy to be your friend. And the religious leaders, they would not touch these people. They would not eat with them. They would have considered it to be incredibly insulting. So the tax collectors and the sinners, they are delighted with Jesus. It could be that no one since they were toddlers has ever made them feel this loved. The tax collectors and sinners, they're on board. They support Jesus. These three parables, they're not primarily for them. They're primarily for the Pharisees and scribes who are treating Jesus as an enemy and one day will help get him killed. These parables are primarily Jesus explaining himself to the religious leaders, to his enemies, trying to help them to see the truth and and change their attitude, the response of their hearts. Now, the first parable is called the parable of the lost sheep. And Jesus says there's a shepherd, he had 100 sheep, one of them is missing, so he leaves the 99 vulnerable and goes and rescues the one and rejoices with his friends and family. And then Jesus tells us in verse 7 what the meaning is. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Well, who are the 99 righteous? Well, from their perspective, that would be the religious leaders, those Pharisees and scribes. 
So then he tells the parable of the lost coin. And a woman had 10 coins and she lost one. She searches high and low in the house, finds it, rejoices. And again, he tells you in verse 10 what the point is. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, in most parables, something or somebody represents God. And in this parable of the lost sheep, the shepherd represents God. And uh, um, the, uh, we do have posts in here, and sometimes they can be complicated, especially if I move. It's my fault. Um, so the shepherd represents God, but in the second parable, a woman represents God, and they would have, the religious leaders would have bristled because that was just against what they thought was honoring to God, even in a metaphor. And so then Jesus goes on to tell his enemies a third parable. Verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, at this point, most of the people listening to Jesus would have gasped. (gasps) This was not done. This was equivalent to the younger son saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. It also, when the inheritance would come, there were two brothers. And so the way the law worked was they would divide all of the estate into three equal parts. The older brother, the elder brother would get two parts, two-thirds, and the younger brother, one-third. So to give him his one-third of the property, of the estate, not just coins, they would literally have to sell off one-third of the property. Now, you need to know that in the ancient world, more than 80% of the people worked in farming. It's not like today. Less than 20% in the cities. And so people were very attached to the land, but the Jewish people were even more attached to the land because it was the promised land that God had given them. And in the law of Moses... It was law that a family could never lose their land. Even if they sold it, it was supposed to come back at the Jubilee, not that we know that it came back every 50 years. So to sell off a third of the land, give away a third of the herds, give away a third of any money they had, would have been a huge loss of honor and status and wealth and face, a loss of face for the family before their entire community. Now, we're going to go on and we're going to see this is a man of standing wealth. He's got servants. Most people didn't. He's probably top 2% of the socioeconomic uh, pyramid. And also with with less than 20% of the population living in cities, what most people don't realize because we live in cities is that when you are in a small agrarian society, anybody ever grow up here? Anybody here grow up in a small agrarian society in a farming community? Everybody knows everybody's business. So it's not like this young son and what he did would go unnoticed. Everybody would know the humiliation of the father and the family and the loss of one-third of their estate. That the son wished his wealthy, influential father dead. So the request to buy up the property was just completely unacceptable. It would have been considered hateful and dishonoring. Everyone in Jesus' audience would have known, well, this is clear how this is going to go down. A young son, he's going to be driven from the father's presence, probably with physical blows and yelling and screaming. But look at the end of verse 13. And he divided his property between them. Now, this would have surprised the crowd. Perhaps they would have gasped again. Unthinkable. Verse 13. 
Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens in that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now, I've, I've never heard of anyone starving in this country in my entire lifetime, starving to death. But in the ancient world, periodically, there were droughts, and tens of thousands of people would die. Pretty much everyone who lived past age 40, they had experienced one of these famines in, in, in their region, and they knew personally people who had literally starved to death. So the crowd understood that the younger son had made a bad choice and was now experiencing the consequences, especially the religious leaders. They would have been nodding their heads and thinking, good, the younger son got what he deserved. Now Jews also had nothing to do with pigs, so to be feeding pigs and longing for their food would have been especially degrading for this young man who came from a wealthy family. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. So he realizes he has sinned. He's not going to ask to rejoin the family. He's dishonored and spurned them. He's going to plead for mercy to merely be treated like a hired hand. He's even rehearsed what he will say. But look what comes next. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. In the first service, I had my robe thingy on, so I was able to, what, what that meant, they wore robes. To run, he would have to hike it up and run. And that's how you would run back then. Any of you ever see the, the TV series Shogun or read the book Shogun by James Clavel? Amazing author, um, passed away now. Um, lots of cultural stuff in there. But at one point, the main Japanese leader in the books or in the show, um, he is pretty much surrounded by his enemies and he can only escape going out on this dock and getting on a ship and sailing away. And they're vastly outnumbered and his men are protecting him. And there's swords and there's, there's spears and there's arrows flying every which way. And while his men are running this way and that way and defending him and knocking down arrows and blocking them and doing all this stuff. But instead of running to the safety of the dock, he's just walking sedately, calmly. Because to do anything else in that culture would dishonor him. It would be a loss of face. We've all seen movies where somebody shoots at the United States president or they, there's a threat and the secret servicemen run in and they force him to run as fast as he possibly can out of danger and some presidents run faster than others. Um, that's not how it was done in the Japanese world of the samurai. That's not how it was done in the ancient world. Wealthy, influential men did not hike up their robe and trot, especially not to a son who had totally humiliated him and the family in front of the entire community. Verse 21, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Do you notice he doesn't even let his son finish his rehearsed lines? He covers his son's filthy probably body and tattered probably clothing with the best robe which means it's probably the father's robe and puts a ring on his finger, which when you work in the fields, you don't wear a ring on your finger. That's more of a sign of status. He's basically saying, welcome home. Welcome back to the family. He's not even allowing him to suggest that he would not be part of the family, but would just be a hired hand. So they kill the fatted calf, and that's a huge deal. In a society like that, that would probably only happen a few times in your lifetime because it would only be when the wealthy enough people, and there weren't that many of them, had a wedding or something like that. They kill the fatted calf, and what that means, the entire community, it's not that large of a community, comes for barbecue. Yay, barbecue. Next week, barbecue. Yay. Some of us like barbecue more than others. So they begin to have a party. Now, this is the end of the first part of the parable. And it parallels the first two parables where Jesus told the crowd about a lost sheep and a lost coin. It's about this God that rejoices over things that are lost being found. This is different in that um, the lost person has repented and come to his senses. But so far, this is what's considered perhaps the most or one of the most encouraging and well-known of Jesus' stories, and it should be. It's God's message to sinners and Gentiles and all because the Gentiles weren't included originally, but it's to the Gentiles, it's to the sinners, it's to all people who have made bad choices. The father represents God. The younger son represents us and how we have been hateful and dishonoring to God, even when we don't recognize it, even when we don't think we are, by, by refusing to love him or to love people well. Because like the younger son, we often make bad choices that they've impacted ourselves, they've impacted others. Sometimes you're just irritable or just impatient or you're judgmental and, and that has an impact and it's a bad one. And then sometimes there are completely devastating things that come from our bad choices that mark us, our life or our family for the rest of this life. That was what the prodigal son had done. He'd done something absolutely devastating to this family. But unlike any other religion, and I loved it when Bob uh, Blinko, the missionary from Frontiers, was here last week, and he talked about how there is no other religion with a God like this God that loves sinners and welcomes them and wants to have a loving relationship with you. It doesn't exist. Love, Bob. But unlike any other religion, God does not stand aloof waiting to punish us. No, he casts all pride aside, all decorum, metaphorically hikes up his robe and runs to greet us, to welcome us back in the family, welcome us home. See, Jesus is pleading with his enemies who are going to kill him, with these religious leaders, to change their understanding of how God sees and treats sinners. They think that people get what they deserve. And Jesus is telling them that God desires grace instead of what people deserve. That he loves people so much that he seeks out the lost, like the lost sheep or the lost coin, 
And he runs to them and welcomes them when they come to their senses. Jesus is hoping the religious leaders will come to their senses. And now we get to the second half of the parable, which may be the whole point of all three. Verse 25, now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Now, by refusing to go in, the elder son is making a public statement. Again, it's a small community. Everybody's seen this, that he does not support his father. He's we can tell he thinks it's unfair. And he thinks it's unfair because he has not made the same bad choices that his younger brother has made. But notice I said he's not made the same bad choices. In the Greek, the phrase, I have served you, that you have in your translation, it's actually probably better translated as, I have slaved for you. Never disobeyed. Look at verse 30. He doesn't call him his brother. He says, that son of yours. And in a patriarchal society like that with this wealthy, influential father, honorable father, he would have started with some title, at least father. But he says, look, which in our language would be equivalent to look, you. It's dishonoring. It's, just, it's, it's demeaning. Maybe he's stopped honoring his father when his father gave up a third of the Estate to the younger brother. You see, the older brother is also making bad choices. They're just not the same ones as the younger brother. This is not an elder son who actually loves his father. He slays for him because one day the estate will be his. He's not really working for his father. He's really working for himself. in the book, The Prodigal God by Tim Keller, which I'm indebted to for a lot of the, uh, some of the concepts in this, this message, and I recommend the book to you. In the book, Keller tells the following story. Once upon a time, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. So he took it to his king and said, my lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. Now the king was touched and he discerned the intent of the man's heart. So as he turned to go, the king said, wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I own a plot of land right next to yours. I will give it to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. And the gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all this and he said, my, if that is what you get for a carrot... What if you gave the, son, the king something better? So the next day the nobleman came before the king and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, My lord, I breed horses and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. 
Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart, said thank you, and took the horse and merely dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed, so the king said, let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. In the parable of the prodigal son, it might actually be better labeled the parable of two lost sons. They're both lost. He's not really working for his father. He's working for himself. He doesn't really love his father for who his father is. He, he slaves for him to earn his inheritance. He refuses to come in and join the party, thus heaping more dishonor on his father. Finishing the parable, verse 31 The father says, and he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So what happens next in the story? Does the elder son join the party? It just ends and we don't know. Why does Jesus leave us hanging? Because the elder son represents the religious leaders who are grumbling about Jesus hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is pleading with them, his enemies, to change their minds, their hearts, their attitude, and join the celebration of grace of people not getting what they deserve. But like the elder son who is slaving to earn his inheritance, the religious leaders believe they are earning God's blessings. You see, they don't really love God. Jesus makes this clear over and over. Like people in all the religions of that day, they were striking a bargain with their God. Not loving him for who he is, but paying their dues to get their rewards. Tim Keller writes, elder brothers obey God to get things. They don't obey God to get God himself in order to resemble him, love him, know him, and delight him. And he adds that they get upset with God when they are not rewarded with a smooth, successful life by their standards. A pastor met a woman who grew up in a church much like my grandmother grew up in a church where basically what was communicated in the messages was was that God accepts you only if you are sufficiently good and ethical. Good enough. And she'd never heard that we are accepted by God by sheer grace through the work of Christ, regardless of what we have done. And so she said, that is a scary idea. If I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if it is really true that I am a sinner saved by sheer grace, at God's infinite cost then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. See, God does not need your flawed works. He just wants you. A relationship where he loves you and you love him, where he can ask anything of you, and you can ask anything of him. Most churches are filled with picky elder brother types. Even if they started off as prodigals, 
we have a tendency to forget the gospel and become picky elder brother types. And then those elder brother types can get upset when young people come back from camp in love with Jesus, but not yet transformed in some of their behaviors. I was once one of those students, and I experienced a church of picky elder brother types. I am so glad that you are not that kind of church. I just hope you will continue to be super excited and see what you can do. Many of you, some of you students don't know this, but last week they passed out cards with some of your names, and there are people that have been praying for you all week. I hope you'll continue praying. Maybe meet the person you're praying for, encourage them, build a relationship. It's an exciting church to be a part of. When I was about 10, my next door neighbor, Jim, who was 16, was racing another car on a street in Santa Barbara when he lost control, crashed, and died. Now, I was like a second son to that family next door, so it impacted us all a lot. The parents dealt their pain with alcoholism. I was Way too foolish to learn from Jim's bad choice, I went on to make many of my own that could easily have killed me. They didn't. But I did abandon God and I strayed far away, but he found me, ran to me, and welcomed me into his family. I hope you will continue to pray for the families and the friends impacted in our tragedy here in Carmel. And remember, like the prodigal son, we all make bad choices. Like the elder son, we all make bad choices. They're both making bad choices. They're both lost. And those can leave us far from God. So turn back to God. He will run to you, forgive you, and welcome you home, welcome you into the family. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we are so quick to forget that it's by your sheer grace. And it's so easy for us to become like the elder brother and point fingers and base things on rules and get judgmental and upset. Oh, Lord, please help us to remember every day how you rescued us, how you ran to us, how it is all by grace that we might celebrate each other, that we might encourage each other. Oh, we're so grateful for houseboats this last week and all that you did there and will continue to do. And Lord, we're so grateful that this is a community where everyone can be welcomed and loved on and encouraged and accepted at whatever point they are in their journey. Lord, help us to be a really welcoming, wonderful church like that.